All right, the title of my sermon today is Occupied with Joy. It's taken from verse 20. You'll understand why in just a few minutes. Stephen Thomas is a computer programmer who lives in San Francisco. He has two guesses left to remember a password that is currently worth $427 million. The password will let him unlock a small hard drive called an iron key that contains the private keys to a digital wallet containing 7,002 Bitcoin, the digital cryptocurrency. He was originally given these 7,002 Bitcoin as payment for a promotional video he made to explain what the currency is to other people. The problem is that years ago, Mr. Thomas lost the paper on which he wrote down the password to his iron key. An iron key gives its users only 10 guesses before it seizes up and encrypts its contents forever. There is no forgot your password button. Thomas has tried, at least to my knowledge, has tried eight of his most common passwords. They have not worked. Two more wrong guesses and $427 million is gone forever. Thomas has said, I'll just lay in bed and think about it. Then I would go to the computer with some new strategy and it wouldn't work. And I would be desperate again. Can you imagine? This morning we continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. The main focus of our passage today is a gap between what wealth promises and what it delivers The passage focuses on the question, does wealth satisfy? Will more money make you happier? The passage is shaped in an interesting way, and there's a couple different ways you can visualize this. One is you can visualize it as two large panels that are held together with a hinge. The first panel would be chapter 5, verses 8 through 17, The second panel would be chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And the hinge in the middle is chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And it's the hinge in the middle that's the key part of this text. It shows us an alternative to our endless striving as humans for more and more and more and more. Now, because these two panels are very similar, I'm going to group them together and then treat the hinge passage on its own. So the sermon, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, uh, if, if you're taking notes, there are two main points today. Number one, the dangers in pursuing wealth. And then secondly, the delight in practicing contentment. The dangers in pursuing wealth and then the delight in practicing contentment. 
I told you there's a couple ways to look at the, the structure of the text. One way is that panel with the hinge. Another way to look at it is kind of like a pyramid that starts out on the farthest edges, very broad. Uh, that would be the first uh, 5, 8 through 12 on one side and 6, 7 through 9 on the other side. And then as we get a little closer to the middle, the next little step of the pyramid would be thir- 5, 13 to 17 and then 6, 1 through 6. And then we get to the top of the pyramid with 5, 18 to 20. And the whole structure of this passage points to the middle. It's something that was commonly used in Hebrew poetry. It's called a chiasm. And so you'll notice, for example, um, in um, verse 10, it talks about being satisfied. You'll also notice down in um, verse 7 of chapter 6, it talks about being satisfied. You'll notice in verse 13, it talks about a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. And you'll see that again in chapter 6 and verse 1. And then in the middle, in, in verse 18, you'll see something good. You'll see something good. So we're working from the bad and the frustrating and the vanity to what is good and what God wants us to learn about wealth. And it's a very clever way of structuring the section. It's not easy to see in English, but it's helpful, um, and we'll try to pursue it that way today. All right, so point number one, the dangers of pursuing wealth. The preacher is not out to convince anyone to pursue wealth. But what he's doing is from a variety of different angles, he keeps asking and answering the question, what does wealth give you? What does it actually bring you when you get it? Now, because of the way this passage is structured, as I mentioned, we're going to break those two larger panels that I mentioned down into two smaller sections. So they're going to show us what pursuing wealth brings. And the two things, the two subpoints under this first main point that I want us to see is that it brings no satisfaction. That's point one or A or however you're doing it. Uh, letter A brings no satisfaction. And then secondly, it brings no joy. All right? So let's look at no satisfaction. We'll work on these verses together. Primarily in this subpoint, we're looking at verses 8 through 12 of chapter 5 and verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6. Okay, so let's work through these verses together. There's a bunch of them, so I'm going to work quickly today, all right? Look at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Why shouldn't you be surprised by oppression? Do we see oppression in our world today? Of course we do. Because all people are sinful, right? And when you put sinful people into positions of power, they will use their power for sinful ends. Always have, always will. But not only that, verse 8 tells us that when sinners are in authority, these very structures of authority can actually reinforce and multiply oppression. It can give oppression kind of a structural shape. So the Hebrew word for watch here, when it says the high official is watched, has the sense of 
watching out or keeping guard for. So, for example, back in the Old Testament, in Genesis, Cain was faulted for not being his brother's keeper, right? Over in Psalm 121, the Lord is called our keeper. So what's going on here in these verses is that the officials who are in power, one above the other, above the other, are keeping each other instead of keeping the public that they've been commissioned to serve. They're looking out for each other's back. All too often, those who are in authority over others guard their own interests or the interests of those below or above them on the authority chain instead of the interest of those for whom they're meant to provide. Do we ever see that in the world? Of course we do, all the time. In the past hundred years, there have been at least 15 heads of state whose net worth individually exceeded the entire wealth of the country they were sovereign over. Think about that for a minute. One person who is richer than the entire country that they're meant to help flourish. Names come to mind like Suharto in Indonesia, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. These were men who had more wealth individually than their whole country. Now, verse 9 is difficult to interpret. It can basically mean one of two things. It could mean that the king exploits the people and robs them of the gain that should come from their cultivated fields. That's how a few Bible translations take it. But I'm inclined to go with the the ESV that we use here, as you see it here. The way the ESV interprets it is that a king who is committed to protecting people's right to benefit from their labor helps everyone to gain from the land. So in other words, the king is there to serve. He's there to help other people flourish, to bring gain to everyone. So what does wealth give you? What does wealth give you? The prospect of gaining wealth gives you a powerful motive. This is, remember, all of this is under the sun. This is humanity apart from God at this point. Wealth gives you, the prospect of gaining wealth gives you a powerful motive to deny the rights of others and trample them underfoot. That's what we actually see. That's verse, that's verse 8. That's what we actually see, the oppression, rather than what we should see, a king who serves his people. Look next at verse, five, uh, verse 10 of chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Sound familiar? We have a lot of talk like this in the New Testament, don't we? Uh, Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. The love of money. You know, lots of bathtubs have a little hole about two-thirds of the way up. You ever seen that little hole in your bathtub? If you start to fill the bathtub too full... It starts draining for you. So you don't leave it on and flood your whole house and ruin everything. Wealth doesn't have a little hole like that, does it? There's no automatic stopping point. No shut-off valve. You can always get more and more and more, so you can always want more and more and more. If you made a million dollars, why not make two? 
Why not make 10? Why not make 100? Verse 10 tells us the fundamental problem is not money. It's the love of money. If you love money, Solomon says, you'll never have enough. To love money is to be on a treadmill that never, you never get off of. To get into a trap. 1 Timothy 6.10, the Apostle Paul warned us, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money. Watch out for it. Nothing wrong with money. The Lord blesses you with money. Nothing wrong with money. Love of money is what will destroy you. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The more money you have, the more people you attract who want something from you. Isn't that true? Money is a magnet for false friends. We see this often in the scriptures. The prodigal son comes to mind, doesn't he? If you have little money, you never have to ask the question, is this person really interested in me, or are they just trying to get something from me? Right? If you're poor, you don't worry about questions like that. And the same goes if you have very little power or very little influence or other commodities that people desire. The question in the second half of the verse implies, when it says, seeing them with his eyes, what that's referring to is his wealth and riches being consumed by the people around him. So it's saying that the wealthy person sees his money being gobbled up by everybody else around him. So the reward for wealth is watching other people consume it. Congratulations. That's the prize. The bigger the house, the more it costs to heat right? Somebody gets that money. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So indigestion from feasting keeps the rich person awake. You ever have a gigantic meal and then you can't sleep really well or you have all those crazy dreams after you eat pepperoni pizza, you know, and you're constantly waking up through the night? But indigestion is not the only thing that keeps the wealthy person up at night. They also stay awake worrying about all their money. The Hebrew word that's translated here, full stomach, can also broadly mean overabundance or having a kind of abundant plenty, being satiated or filled up. So the more you have, the more you have to worry about. And the more economically productive you are, the more other people depend on you. If you employ 10 people, well, that's a great thing for you and them until cash flow dries up and you have to make impossible choices. If you've got an empire to maintain, somebody can always break off a piece. The more money, the more investments, the more property that you have, the more people clamor for your attention and affection. Riches promise blessing, but often they deliver burden. They often promise blessing, but they deliver burden. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Now jump down to chapter 6 and look at the parallel statements in verses 7, 8, and 9. 
All, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Not satisfied. For what advantage can, has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after win. If you work hard, earn all you can, consume all you want, the same appetites will just spring back as strong as ever. Maybe even stronger because they need more to satisfy them than they used to. Work to eat and eat to work. The hamster wheel just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This verse is saying, it's better to enjoy what you have than to lose even that by chasing after some imaginary gain. One commentator captured this pretty well. He wrote this, quote, If we're enjoying a good meal with friends, this is, as Solomon says, a sight of the eyes, and it is good. But if we start to think of other things, we crave a better cuisine, perhaps, or prestige, or success. We lose contact with the actual place and moment. And our soul departs, as it were, and wanders off to some non-existent place. Then the moment is depleted of meaning, and we have nothing. So if you sit around and daydream all day long, instead of appreciating the moment that you're in and what God has given to you, you'll lose even that moment and the blessing you could have had. If you always want more, you'll never enjoy what you have. Wealth promises satisfaction because it promises pleasure. It promises power. It promises fulfillment. It promises security. It promises control. It promises freedom. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today, we're glad you're here. You're always welcome at any of our, any of our services. But I wonder... Which of those promises of wealth appeals most to you? Money on its own is empty. It's just a medium of exchange, right? It's a medium of getting something or getting someone to do something for you. Well, what is the something that you want right now more than anything? What is it you want to have or you want done for you? Which of money's promises goes deepest into your heart? And have you experienced in your life any of how money and wealth fail to satisfy? Have you experienced any of the emptiness of wealth and prosperity? If wealth can't satisfy you, what can? Pursuit of wealth, one of the dangers is it brings no satisfaction. Second sub-point, it brings no joy. Look again back at chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Lost in a bad venture. There was a GameStop stock frenzy earlier this year, back in February. A 19-year-old college student named Evan Osterneck had, he was a student in the Netherlands. He invested in this stock, the equivalent of 10,000 U.S. dollars. That money came from his parents' savings and his government college loans. He lost 90% of it in a single day. Riches always promise help, but they can just as easily hurt. You can hoard wealth only to watch it evaporate, just like that. As Jesus said, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Being rich now is no guarantee that you will be rich in a year or that your kids will be rich down the road. No guarantee. Verses 15 to 17 here, chapter 5. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Whatever you amass for yourself here, you can't take it with you. You can't. What's the point of living poor so that you can die rich? Or living rich so you can die poor? Verse 17 portrays the miser as someone who is dead while they live. Instead of enjoying God's good gifts freely in the company of others, look at him. He's in the dark and he's vexated and he's sick. And he's angry. If you're a slave to consumption, you end up consuming yourself. If you love money, instead of money being your servant, it will become your master. And again, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It can't be done. Travel back in time, 2,000 years. Imagine a poor person in the Roman Empire who gets to visit Caesar's pleasure gardens for a day. Talk about a golden ticket. The flowers smell just as sweet to that poor person. The bird's song sounds just as beautiful to that poor person. But Caesar has to pay for it all. Who enjoys the garden more? This is the warning of chapter 6 and the first six verses. We'll turn our attention to that now. 
There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? In verses 3 to 5, the preacher contrasts the person who's enslaved to wealth with a stillborn child. The illustration is kind of tough to stomach, isn't it? The point is not at all to minimize the tragedy of losing a child through a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Instead, The preacher's sole point is the comparison. He's saying that a life enslaved to money is a non-life. It's a living death. There's no rest in it because there's no satisfaction. There's no joy. The person who loves money can never rest because they're never satisfied. Verse 2 tells us this person has everything, but can enjoy nothing. Now, one reason for their lack of enjoyment is, verse 2, it could be external, right? A stranger enjoys them. That kind of ticks me off, right? I did all this work to do this, and that person comes along who didn't do any of the work, and they get to enjoy it. (sighs) That's not fair. That's vanity. That could be one reason why he doesn't enjoy his stuff. You amass a fortune and you die too soon to enjoy it. Or it's all taken away from you through corruption. Or, or you're so addicted to work that you have no time left over to enjoy any of the things that you're sacrificing so much to get. But another reason you could have everything and enjoy nothing is internal. Verse 3. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. You could enjoy nothing because even when you sit down to feast, you're not there because your heart is off wandering somewhere else, longing for something bigger, better, more pleasurable. A vast fortune is like the finest meal in the world. What good is it to you if you have no taste buds? Both the food and the ability to taste it are gifts of God. Do you see that? God gives him the power, the ability to enjoy. God doesn't always give both together. Well, that's almost the whole passage. We've got three verses left. They're crucial verses. They're the middle. They're the main point. 
taking account of all we've seen so far and anticipating what we're about to see in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, here's the big idea so far. Wealth is not the problem or the solution. Our desires are the problem. And contentment is a solution. Here's how the North African church father Augustine put it back in the 5th century. Listen to this. Such, O my soul, are the miseries that attend on riches. They are gained with toil and kept with fear. They are enjoyed with danger and lost with grief. It is hard to be saved if we have them and impossible if we love them. And scarcely can we have them, but we shall love them inordinately. Teach us, O Lord, this difficult lesson, Augustine says, to manage conscientiously the goods we possess and not covetously desire more than you give to us. The dangers of pursuing wealth. All right, in our remaining time, let's look at the second main point, the delight in practicing contentment. Verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyments in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Isn't it nice in Ecclesiastes when we get to verses that say, I have seen a good thing. It's so nice to get to those verses, isn't it? Those little oasis in the middle of all the darkness of life under the sun. And by the way, just a little tidbit of information for you. Chapter 6 and verse 9, where it says, This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That's the last time you're going to see that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. Most people consider verse 9 the halfway point through the book. And so now we're going to turn our attention. There will be some, some things that are still under the sun, but we're going to see things that are more positive and beautiful as we move into the second half of the book. Well, back to our section here. Look down at chapter 6 for a moment and verse 12. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but... The verse says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. The question is, who knows what is good for man? It's a rhetorical question. The the context would demand the answer, no one. But we just read in chapter 5 and verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting 
is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. So the preacher in our text this morning says he has the answer to what he says in chapter 6 and verse 12, nobody can answer. There's a contradiction. And, and, and that's just the point. It's deliberate. Solomon leaves these two side by side. He's been doing this all through the book, by the way. He leaves these things side by side, so we have to ask ourselves, what's the difference? What makes the difference to this kind of living and this kind of living? Look at verse 19 again, chapter 5. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So here, the preacher shows that he is, he's not dead set against wealth and possessions. They are gifts from the hand of God himself. But you can only enjoy them if God gives you the ability to. So in verses 18 through 20, the preacher defines contentment, accepting your lot and rejoicing in your toil. That's what it means to be content. It's to see the limits that God has placed on your life as part of what makes your life the good and created thing that it is. Here's how the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote a, a, an excellent book on contentment, the, it's called the, uh, the, Christian, the Christian Case for Contentment or something like that. But he defines contentment this way, quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of mind which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Whatever state God has put you in, I submit to and I delight in. That's exactly what Solomon's saying here in our text. How do you get it, though? We all struggle with love of money, with pursuing other things other than God. How do we get contentment? What is the delight in practicing contentment? I'm going to give you three brief sub-points. Here's the first one. Not grasping, but receiving. Not grasping, but receiving. Verse 18. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. How you can enjoy all these things in life is by recognizing that they are your lot, your portion, your peace that God has given you. God has apportioned it to you. He's He has all the blessings, all the riches of all eternity, and he took some of that and apportioned it to you. God has planned it, he has prepared it, and he has personally delivered it. Eating, drinking, 
working are all goods that you receive. You don't create them. You don't finally secure them for yourself. And when you receive them with empty and open hands, there's two things that happen. First, you actually receive them instead of turning away and wandering off to something else. Something else you, you imagine that you would like more. And the second thing is when you receive a gift, you're grateful. If food is a gift, you're grateful for it. That's one of the main reasons why most Christians, before we eat a meal, we pray. Why? Because we're sanitizing the food? No! If the food's bad, you're going to get sick. Prayer doesn't change that. You, you understand that? We pray before our food because we're saying thank you for providing it, for giving us the power to enjoy it, for how wonderful it tastes, for how it strengthens our bodies. We're thankful people. If food is a gift, you're grateful for it. If work is a gift, you are grateful for it. If rest is a gift, you are grateful for it. When you see that every good thing in your life comes not from grasping for it and striving for it, but from God's giving it to you, then you can start praying a prayer of thanksgiving that will never end your whole life. Second, not gain, but gifts. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes uses the word gain throughout the book in a specialized sense. It means something that's left over, something you get to keep on the side for yourself. But no earthly gift is like that. Earthly gifts all have limits, don't they? They all expire in some way. But if you recognize and submit to the limits of God's gifts, you can receive them as gifts. If you stop grasping for gain, you can obtain the power from the Lord to enjoy all the good things He's already given you. If you go to a restaurant, you cannot have every meal on every plate in front of every person in the place. Sorry. What you get to eat is the one meal the waiter sets in front of you. God is like the eternal chef who cooks the meal. And he's also the waiter who delivers it to you. However big of a portion it is, you get whatever meal you get. Whether it's wealth or money, skill, success, power, influence, God is the chef who cooks it, and he's the waiter who brings it to you. Part of rightly stewarding God's gifts is learning to enjoy them. We glorify the giver when his good gifts make us glad. Third, not worry but joy. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is a godly forgetfulness. 
It's a forgetfulness of everything in your life that could keep you worrying, fretting. Fretting about what happened, what might have happened, what you wish would have happened, what is happening now, what might still happen. If you are content, your heart is so full of joy and thankfulness, there's no room for worry. There's no room for fretting. This is the right way to be preoccupied. Give yourself to what God has put right in front of you and don't worry about everything else. Think about kids on a snow day. Yes, it will eventually come. They wake up early, they spring out of bed, they run downstairs. They cannot be delayed by breakfast. Who cares about food? It's snowing. Don't you see what's going on out there? i got to get in it. It would normally take them hours to get dressed for school. But on a snow day, there's four layers of clothing, hats, gloves, boots. Fifteen seconds flat, they're out the door. And then they're out there as long as the snow lasts. Snowmen, sledding, Snow ice cream, snowball fights, snow angels, ice sculptures, you name it. It's endless. They don't remember the cold very much because God keeps them occupied with joy in their hearts. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front. We're going to sing a final song here of response in just a moment. As they're coming... Let's summarize what we've learned in this long passage today. Hopefully you'll have a little more time, maybe some of you in your ABF classes, some of you over lunch, to talk further about it. Godly contentment means investing your ultimate happiness in God. And if your happiness depends on nothing in this world, then you can be happy with anything. And you know as Christians, your real and ultimate happiness is still coming. Another Bitcoin millionaire, Brad Yassar, actually lost all his passwords years ago. His Bitcoin are now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But you can never get it. He has since put his hard drives into vacuum-sealed bags and stored them out of sight. He said, I don't want to be reminded every day that what I have now is a fraction of what I could have had that I lost. Christian, if you want to be content, remind yourself every day that what you have is infinitely more than you deserve. Remind yourself every day that what you have now is nothing compared to what you will have. And remind yourself every day that what you will have can never be lost. And friend, if you are here this morning and not a follower of Jesus Christ, but a pursuer of wealth, lover of money, 
let me encourage you to stop that pursuit and start pursuing Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reminds us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus set aside his vast, unlimited, eternal wealth and came down to this planet nearly 2,000 years ago and lived in relative poverty contently on a mission to give his life for you, to take your punishment for your sins on himself and in return to offer you eternal life and an eternal inheritance. He is worth infinitely more than all your accumulated wealth, your retirement, your stock portfolio, your possessions, your gold and silver. Yeah, I know some of you buy those coins. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you and for me. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead and returned in triumph to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he is coming back. And he's coming back to collect his followers and to take them to the place he's been preparing for them in heaven. Will you be there? Are you ready to follow Jesus? Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time and you're finally ready to start following Jesus only. Are you ready to follow Him, to call Him your Lord, to value Him above all? We're going to stand and sing that truth right now. Go ahead and stand. But after the service concludes in just a few moments, if you are here this morning and you would like to become a follower of Jesus Christ, I would just encourage you to see any of our pastors Talk to a Christian sitting around you. They would love to talk to you and share their testimony, how they came to be a follower of Jesus. Or you can stop right up here in the corner of the sanctuary, up here on your left in the cubicle, and talk to a counselor in our prayer room who will help to show you from the Word of God how you can find not just Jesus and not just an inheritance, but joy. Joy that never, ever fades. Joy that's reserved in heaven for you. And joy that you can experience now in part as God gives you the ability to rejoice in His good gifts. Let's sing together.